All right, you know who pays for this, right? So, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com forward slash Doc Fermento. Welcome to another edition of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. And today we're going to discover the world of Chris Masterjohn. I think we're going to be talking a little uh, Weston A. Price, cholesterol, and uh, some fat-soluble vitamins. So if I fail to... Um, if you don't learn something in this episode, I failed. Because um, Chris has some serious knowledge, and let, let's see how much we can extract in one hour. All right. Hi, Chris, and welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, man, it's, it's great. I'm, I feel honored to have you. Um, I've heard you on other shows, and it, the, I always have to do a lot of homework after. Let me just say that. Well, thanks, Brian. I'm, I'm honored. Let's get going. All right. So how did you get into this game? Uh, well, I mean, I've always been interested in nutrition going back to at least my teenage years. Uh, I, my mom had recovered from some health problems using nutritional approaches, and so she had some influence on me. Uh, I got very interested in vegetarianism, in part for health reasons, uh, when I was in my late teens, and I had a very bad experience with that uh, while I was... Now, this isn't to say that, you know, this happens to every vegetarian. It clearly doesn't. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I w for my predisposition, uh, you know, I was vulnerable to certain nutrient deficiencies on a vegetarian diet. So I developed a lot of problems with uh, tooth decay and mm -hmm. anxiety problems and digestive problems and so on. Well, do, looking, and, well real quick, looking, looking back, do you um, would you admit to ha you have eating a, a pretty good version of a vegetarian diet or was it lacking? Well, I Even mean, for vegetarian was, standards, you know. Well, for I mean, for what I believed about nutrition at the time, I thought that I was doing it right. Okay. If I were to look back in retrospect, if I were to do vegetarianism over again, I would I would do it differently. Uh, but that's not because I did it in a um, uncaring or not unconscientious way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it's not like I was eating vegetarian jelly beans. <laughs> uh, for most of my food, you know, I was eating, um, I was eating fruits, vegetables, whole grains, uh, tofu, a variety of other soy products and so on. Okay. I was probably overdosing on the soy and I, I certainly would use a lot less soy now. And, uh, you know, I had my fair share of, uh, tofurkey and fake and bacon <laughs> and, uh, all of those <laughs> vegetarian meat products that I wouldn't eat at all. If I were to try it again, uh, but I was certainly I was certainly trying to do uh, what I thought was healthy at the time, and I nevertheless uh, stumbled into all these problems. So, when I was in my second to last year d during my undergraduate studies, I came across the work of Weston Price, and at the time I had a mouthful of tooth decay, and uh, so. Weston Price's work was very appealing to me because he was a dental researcher and a dentist, and 
his book was basically uh, all about his travels around the world studying people uh, who had freedom from tooth decay and trying to understand why. And uh, in Weston Price's work, he put a strong emphasis on the need for nutrient-dense animal products. And these were products that I just wasn't eaten, eating because I was a vegetarian. So um, this had a profound effect on me because as I started to change my diet more in line with the principles of Weston Price, I started to recover not only from my tooth decay, Sorry. So, uh, from the last I heard, it was just as you were, you know, attempting to recover from tooth decay and discovering Weston A. Price's work. So when I discovered Weston Price's work, uh, you know, he he put an extraordinary emphasis on uh, nutrient-dense animal foods, which were foods that I wasn't eating at all. And so as I began to change my diet, I, in more in lines with the more in line with the principles of Weston Price, I recovered not only from my tooth decay, but from many of my other problems that I didn't even realize were connected to nutrition. And so from that point on, I decided to learn as much as I could about nutrition. I got involved with the Weston A. Price Foundation. I did a lot of research and writing for them and eventually decided to pursue my PhD in nutrition. And I'm finishing that up now. Yeah, that, that's that's awesome. Um, I know just before... We were talking a little bit about um, you had done some writing um, in regards as uh, about with the uh, the China study, and uh, I thought it was right. very interesting your exchange with uh, T. Colin Campbell. Yeah, I uh, I wrote. Sally Fallon asked me to write a review, a book review of the China study uh, back in two thousand five, and I wrote a review. It wasn't a very detailed analysis. It was. Uh, just several pages long, uh, published for Wise Traditions, the quarterly journal of the Weston A. Price Foundation, and that was in the spring of 2005. And uh, that led to me actually talking quite a bit with Dr. Campbell, and we were we had initially planned to give him some space to respond to my review, and he initially agreed, uh, but over time, I guess he realized that uh, I was what he called uh, one of those people who mischievously, mischievously poses as a qualified scientist. And uh, he was surprised that I uh, was, you know, just a 23-year-old kid who didn't even have a graduate degree. Mm-hmm. And he decided to back out. And instead, he just wrote a response <laughs> that was published on VegSource.com, which was mostly a hodgepodge of ad hominem attacks against me. View, and uh, I responded to him on my website, uh, but never heard from him after that. <laughs> that was all right. So we're now Skype to cell phone. The call quality is going to degrade, but um, if if we lose the call this time, it's all me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And there's not much I can do because everything here looks spot on. It's, it's probably me. I mean, my computer works fine, but the yeah. internet connected at my house is very wishy-washy. Okay. Like I said, I, you're, you know, the the quality, the sound quality is not important. We're talking about some some pretty deep, serious issues here. Some chemistry, man. <laughs> so absolutely, let's move on from sure. this 
this other garbage stuff. Um, there's a lot. There are some really. It is a pretty fascinating read. I'll have some links so people can go back and read the rebuttals back and forth. And let let's let that go for now. Let's talk about my favorite sterol, cholesterol. <laughs> Oh, that's your favorite sterile too. <laughs> it's the that's only one I. It's the only one I know of. <laughs> How did you and me wind up with the same favorite sterile? That is like that is crazy. That's just out of this world. Seriously, I wouldn't even know if there were other sterile. So <laughs> I, we we must be long lost twins. Indeed. So, how are you going to help us out? How how are we going to explain this in a reasonable amount of time and without taking it down a biochemistry rat hole that we can't recover from uh sure so we'll cut out the biochemistry and we'll do it real quick okay so cholesterol is uh cholesterol's a very important molecule that you get from food and you also make yourself the reason you can make so much of it yourself is because it's important for a lot of things it's important for brain function for learning and for memory and that's why you make more uh, cholesterol when you go to sleep that night uh, because that's when you're putting all your memories together and sorting out all the information from the day. Uh, It's also necessary for your digestion. Uh, It's necessary for a very close relative of cholesterol. It's necessary to make vitamin D from sunshine. Cholesterol is necessary to make all of the steroid hormones, and that includes the sex hormones, and it includes a, a variety of other hormones that regulate your uh, blood sugar and your b- blood pressure and mineral levels in your blood and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very important for all these things. And uh, then, then why so demonized? That, yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately, it also gets blamed for heart disease, uh, and that's based on the faulty idea that when cholesterol levels rise too high in our blood, this is what causes atherosclerosis or the development of fatty plaques that can eventually rupture and cause a heart attack or a stroke, uh, when in fact the evidence suggests that it's not cholesterol itself, that cholesterol isn't really the perpetrator, but cholesterol is actually a victim. And uh, it's it's not the concentration of cholesterol and other lipids in the blood that is so important. It's how do we protect those uh, lipids in the blood from degeneration, because they can be vulnerable to attacks uh, by a variety of oxidants that can be generated from poor metabolism or from inflammation or from exposure to toxins or from lack of proper nutrient intake in the diet. So really the key to maintaining heart disease isn't about uh, suppressing cholesterol or antagonizing it or making a war against it. Really the protection from heart disease comes from maintaining a robust metabolism uh, minimizing inflammation from infection and other sources, and eating a nutrient-dense diet that contains all the nutrients that we need to protect cholesterol and mm-hmm. other vulnerable mm-hmm. lipids from degeneration. So there is a... Have we identified an optimal cholesterol range or proportion for... Optimal in what sense? Um, well, how much you not eat dying. How much no, blood yeah, um, right. Right. So everyone's obsessed with getting their numbers, you know, their number checked. Um, do we know where we need to land on those numbers? Do we need, you know, do we have that figured out? Well, I don't think that uh, the number itself is really the important thing because I don't think that you can look at the concentration of cholesterol in the blood and uh, and determine anything just based on that number. 
Uh, if you look at populations that have not been uh, industrialized and modernized, who have been studied and been shown to be very free of heart disease, uh, you can see very wide ranges of blood cholesterol among these different groups, some of them very low, like the Maasai, uh, who are a cattle herding tribe in Kenya and Tanzania. They were studied extensively in the 1960s uh, and shown to be free of heart disease, but uh, their cholesterol levels are very low. The men tend to be around 135. The women tend to be around uh reaching maybe 140 to 160 with age, going up in pregnancy, but otherwise staying pretty low. Uh, on the other hand, you have tropical islanders, such as the Catavans or the inhabitants of Puka Puka and Tokelau, where they're uh, eating a quite different uh, diet, and their, their genetics might be a little bit different. Their cholesterol levels are very different. Their cholesterol levels uh, on Catava, the, the men maintain cholesterol levels around 180, while the women can uh, have cholesterol levels that reach up to 220 or even 250 with age. And on Tokelau, uh, the, you know, the young men will even have cholesterol levels of 220, and the women, likewise, may reach cholesterol levels up to 250. So there's mm -hmm. a very wide range of cholesterol levels that are consistent with freedom from heart disease. Uh, but I do think that if cholesterol levels land very far outside of those ranges, I do think it might indicate a problem uh, because uh, if cholesterol levels start to drift, drift upwards to unusual levels, let's say above 250 uh, or so, that might indicate that there are some metabolic problems mm -hmm. clearing cholesterol from the blood. Uh, but it, the concentration itself is not the key issue. Uh, it only becomes an issue when the concentration reaches an unusual level that might indicate some other metabolic problem, like a failure in the metabolism. Mm -hmm. And I do think when cholesterol levels get above 250, uh, maybe even in the 220 to 250 range in men, uh, then you, you don't want to panic, but you might start looking at whether there are some metabolic issues going on. Okay. Uh, and that, that might provide a, a clue to start looking. Yeah, so you were talking about that the the damaging element then was the this oxidation. So before exactly. we can cover that, I think maybe we need to back up and explain um, the, the different um, cholesterols measurements and the triglycerides, HDL, and LDL. Right. Sure. Uh, so there is only one type of cholesterol in the body, and in fact, there's only one type of cholesterol in the entire animal kingdom. And it's just called cholesterol. However, right. when we get our cholesterol tested at the doctor, they'll usually report uh, different types of cholesterol. But it's not really different types. Mm -hmm. It's really different carriers of the cholesterol. Mm -hmm. The cholesterol is carried in our blood in lipoproteins, uh, and the, the name of these particles comes from lipo meaning fat and protein meaning protein. Uh, so it's basically a complex sort of uh, a, kind of a ball-shaped particle uh, that has that has uh, lipids on the outside and the inside, and, and proteins weave through the membrane. The proteins kind of direct where it's going, uh, you know, to the, to make sure that the particle can transfer cholesterol, fats, and fat-soluble vitamins to the right place. And uh, depending on the size of the particle and what type of protein is in it, 
It might be called a low-density lipoprotein, or LDL, and a high-density lipoprotein, or HDL. And uh, there's a common mythology that calls LDL cholesterol the bad cholesterol Mm -hmm. and HDL cholesterol the good cholesterol. I don't really think that we can uh, really use that terminology and and consider it a a valid uh, way of talking about cholesterol at all. I don't think LDL cholesterol is a bad cholesterol or HDL cholesterol is a good cholesterol. However, uh, I, I do think that when there are metabolic problems, this usually leads to a rise primarily in LDL cholesterol. So if your cholesterol gets up into the 220, 250 range for men or or much above 250 for women, uh, if the total to HDL cholesterol ratio, which is basically the same thing as the LDL to HDL cholesterol ratio, uh, if this ratio is very high, then it's much more likely that there is some metabolic a problem behind the high cholesterol mm-hmm. than if it's low. Uh, so HDL is good in that sense, but it's not because HDL is a good guy and LDL is a bad guy. It's just because of the way these metabolic problems tend to manifest themselves. Yeah. So really, high, really, really high LDL cholesterol can be a marker of some metabolic problems, but it's not necessarily bad in and of itself. Uh, triglycerides are basically fat molecules. Uh, Fat is, when we eat fat or when fat's carried in our body, uh, it's usually fatty acids that are, there's three fatty acids and they're tied together uh, to a, a, a um, molecule called glycerol. And when they, when they come together, we call this a triglyceride. It's mm-hmm. just basically the simplest way of storing fat. And uh, these, uh, if, again, if we look at these populations that are free of heart disease, we see a wide range of triglyceride levels, but we really never see them go above, say, 120 milligrams per deciliter in uh, these non-modernized, uh, healthy heart disease-free populations. And that's pretty consistent with the reference ranges you would get uh, when you get the results back from your doctor. Usually, if plus, uh, excuse me, triglycerides are over 150 milligrams per deciliter, then they'll, they'll consider that high, tri- high triglycerides. And I think that's pretty reasonable because that's basically what we see as normal. Uh, is anything below, you know, 150 or a little bit lower than that, below 120 or so um, in these healthy populations? So I think it's entirely reasonable reference range. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually the triglycerides are really high, uh, especially if they uh, rise in response to carbohydrate feeding, uh, beyond this range, then that probably indicates that someone is insulin resistant uh, and p- possibly on their way to diabetes eventually. Uh, but, uh, th- you know, there, in rare cases, it could be from certain genetic issues, but it, most of the time it indicates insulin resistance. Okay. So when someone gets their cholesterol measured and they get a standard cholesterol, what is the test called? What do they what do they call that? Cholesterol screening or something? Um, you get a cholesterol a total cholesterol number, and then you get a, your HDL number and an LDL. Okay, so you get the three numbers, but mm-hmm. they in no way add up to the total cholesterol number. Do you understand what I'm saying? If I had a cholesterol uh, of two hundred, sure, sure. What's the yes, missing that... number? Well. Uh... Usually, they're e- or you mean if HDL and LDL don't add up? Right. Uh, 
so there, HDL and LDL aren't the only lipoproteins. There's, there's, the HDL and LDL are high and low in, uh, density lipoproteins. There's also uh, intermediate density lipoproteins and very low density lipoproteins. Uh, and if you're fasting, there shouldn't really be any uh, chylomicrons, but uh, chylomicrons are another type of lipoprotein. Okay. Uh, so when you eat a meal, your intestines make chylomicrons, and they usually get taken up very quickly by uh, some of the you know some of the stuff that you ate that's carried, and then gets sucked away by many of your tissues, and then whatever's left over gets taken up by the liver. If you're fasting, you're mostly going to have uh, you know unless you are very inefficient at clearing the chylomicrons, you're mostly going to have VLDL, uh, LDL and HDL, and maybe some IDL. Uh, IDL is, is kind of uh, an intermediate uh, on the, an intermediate between those. Uh, so most of that cholesterol that isn't accounted for by HDL and LDL is probably VLDL cholesterol. I see. Okay, and this it's not really a concern uh, well, for pra- the practical sense or for? Uh, it's, it's not really a concern because the um, anything that you could use LDL cholesterol as a marker for, you could just as easily and accurately use non-HDL cholesterol as a marker for. Okay. Uh, so when you look at the total to HDL cholesterol ratio, for example, you're lumping in all of the non-HDL cholesterol together. So you're lumping in the LDL cholesterol and the VLDL cholesterol. And in fact, usually, uh, usually when you get a typical test from your doctor, the LDL isn't even measured, it's calculated. And uh, they calculate, there's some evidence for that calculation that it's inaccurate and will overestimate your LDL if your triglycerides are really low. Uh, but it sort of doesn't really matter because um, all of the, any, they are measuring the HDL cholesterol, and so whatever, and they are measuring the total, so everything else is non-HDL cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the best um, the best way to summarize the blood lipids as a marker for cardiovascular disease risk, or as a metabolic marker for uh, you know some of those metabolic issues we were talking about a few minutes ago, is just to look at the total to HDL cholesterol ratio. So uh, if the calculation of the LDL is a little bit off, it has no effect on the non-HDL cholesterol ratio. I see. Um, so if they don't add up exactly, it, it's it's uh, it's not that much of a of a concern because you can just differentiate between HDL and the rest of it. Okay. So if what we're really after is determining the level of oxidation or oxidative damage to the LDL, correct? How can mm-hmm. we determine that directly? Is there? Uh, I don't think there are any commercial tests available for uh, oxidized LDL. They are working on some, and they're used in research, uh, and they perhaps are on their way to being used clinically, but they're not there yet. Uh, there, there is. Uh, clinically used and commercially available test for lipoprotein A, and there is some evidence that that strongly correlates with uh, LDL oxidation levels. However, mm-hmm. uh, uh, lipoprotein A sometimes 
abbreviated as healthy little A, is also very tied to genetics. So it's really not a uh, reliable marker of anything because <laughs> uh, it could be high or low because of your genetics or it could be high or low because of oxidative stress and inflammation, and you don't really know which uh-huh. one without looking further right. into the issue. Right. Uh, so there really is no, there really is no uh, perfect marker that is mm-hmm. widely available for oxidized LDL, and really, you know, with any test, you really want to see it tested in many studies for a long time to gauge its accuracy in predicting disease risk, gauge its accuracy in predicting, uh, you know, all the things that you're trying to look for. And we always have to remember that uh, we don't want to be moleculists. We mm-hmm. don't want to be saying some molecules bad, some molecules good. We want to look at the proce- processes that are going on in the body. And that is even true at looking at oxidized LDL versus LDL oxidation. Um, you know, the, if you take a snapshot of the oxidized LDL that is in your blood at the moment that it was drawn, that it, that may be, you know, if the test is perfectly accurate, that may be an accurate snapshot of what it was at that instant. Mm-hmm. But the question is, is it an accurate uh, picture of the process that's going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week? And that's where I think we need to be careful. And when these tests are available uh, at the doctor's office, we need to regard them you know, we need to try them out, but we need to regard them with some skepticism uh, and, you know, pay attention for a while to see uh, what the research is on how well they're predicting the actual process. Uh, so the only, you know, the way that I see this is uh, everybody gets their, their basic blood lipids tested for free, and, uh, I mean, almost for free, you know, you go you go to the doctor, it's very easy to get your doctor to, to order your total LDL and HDL cholesterol and you pay the copay, and, uh, and that's the end of it. You don't have to argue with your doctor over it and you don't have to go through a, uh, you know, a direct laboratory where you're actually going to pay mm-hmm. for the whole test. So uh, I, think that, I think that since the, uh, th- those are so well characterized, they're really not perfect markers of anything, but I think it's a good idea to try to take maximal advantage of how we can use them to try to infer uh, when there might be issues that might be causing LDL oxidation, like this metabolic backup. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've really hi- highlighted is that when the total to HDL cholesterol ratio really goes out of whack and the total cholesterol is really high, that's very often a sign of hypothyroidism, for example. And there's very good evidence that... Uh, when you have low thyroid activity, you have low LDL clearance from the blood. In other words, your cells are, are not actively metabolizing it. And there's very good evidence that when that happens, LDL oxidation takes place and atherosclerosis develops and heart disease risk dramatically increases. So in those cases, I think it's much easier to say, okay, this might indicate a thyroid problem. Let's look into the thyroid problem further, and if it's there, correct it, than to try to actually quantify how much LDL oxidation is going on, mm-hmm. because we do have good ways of looking for thyroid issues and normalizing thyroid issues, whereas we don't have good ways of quantifying the oxidation of LDL. Hmm. So that's why okay. I focus on that. I see that, yeah. So, 
how how important is this well it's new to me this idea this information of um, two particle sizes of LDL and how important is that uh, actually there are more than two particle sizes of LDL and it kind of uh, depends on how you splice the issue okay. uh, and what way you measure it but there are two patterns described A and B and uh, pattern A is when you have a preponderance of larger particles and this is sometimes called the large and fluffy or large and buoyant LDL, mm-hmm. and that is considered the good pattern that is uh, protective of heart disease. And pattern B is the small, dense LDL, uh, and this just this is not a particular size. It just means that you have a preponderance of small and dense LDL on you know on the smaller and denser side of the spectrum, and this pattern is associated with heart disease risk. Uh, The thing is, we don't know where the cause and effect lies. There are many things that can cause LDL to be small and dense, uh, and there are many theories about why small, dense LDL is associated with heart disease. Some of them are causal theories, meaning the small, dense LDL in and of itself causes atherosclerosis. And these theories say that because it's smaller, it's more it more easily penetrates the blood vessel wall because it's smaller it more easily oxidizes because it's smaller it more easily sticks uh, to these uh, kind of strands called proteoglycans that are behind the blood vessel wall uh, or because it's small it uh, spends more time in the blood and doesn't get uh, cleared as easily from the blood and all of these things might contribute to heart disease However, you could also uh, you could also come up with an alternative hypothesis that says that small dense LDL is just a marker, uh, because when LDL particles are not cleared efficiently from plasma, from some entirely different reason having nothing to do with the size. For example, if your thyroid activity is low, your LDL receptor activity is low, your metabolism is low, then over time those particles become small and dense. So the question hmm. is, where is the cause and effect relationship? Mm-hmm. And my position on this is, I don't know. It could be a variety of things. But what I do know is that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that poor clearance of LDL particles from the blood contributes to heart disease. And in fact, I consider the I consider this to be one of the most well documented and well supported theories in uh, health related theories in biology. So. I think that uh, because small dense LDL can be seen as a marker of poor uh, metabolism of LDL, uh, I'm inclined to I'm inclined to support that interpretation over the others, just because there's more evidence uh, supporting uh, supporting that general uh, paradigm. Uh, the other thing is. When you look in the epidemiological studies that correlate small dense LDL with heart disease risk, it is a marker for heart disease risk, but it is not an independent marker of uh, traditional blood lipids like the total HDL cholesterol ratio. In other words, if you statistically correct uh, or adjust small dense LDL 
for the total to HDL cholesterol ratio, its correlation with heart disease risk disappears. <laughs> so what this is saying is that it provides a piece of information, but it doesn't provide an additional piece of information beyond what the total to HDL cholesterol ratio is providing. The way that I tentatively interpret this is that uh, neither the total HDL cholesterol ratio nor small dense LDL are causes of heart disease, but that they are both conveying some, uh, some snippet of information that lies behind what we're actually looking at. In other words, they're each markers for something else. And the fact that they don't seem to be providing independent information they seem to be providing the same piece of information in a redundant manner. Hmm. That indicates to me that we should look for something that causes both small dense LDL and a high total to HDL cholesterol ratio. And poor clearance of LDL particles from the blood uh, can uh, be an excellent explanation for something that would cause both of those. So my interpretation is until there is further evidence supporting other explanations, I currently regard small dense LDL as just another marker mm -hmm. for, um, for this poor metabolism. Yeah, it looks like we have an extremely accurate measuring stick, and for what purpose <laughs> in some way? So what I want to know then is how do we uh, repair this poor clearance of LDL? Say, in our practical world, dietarily exercise? What are, right? they, well, what are their the, best you know, approaches? The, right. So the first thing, I mean, you, we could separate that into two issues. One is how to be healthy and one is uh, is how to correct a problem. And uh, I think... You know, you let's, know go, it, let's go with this. Go people people that are healthy and, and aware and, you know, they're, they're doing fine, let, let's let that go. What if someone is in a more critical situation or concerned? Does that make a difference? Uh, if yes, for someone who's in a more critical, you mean so? so say someone uh, has these blood lipids that are totally out of whack. Uh, totally out of whack, has, right? Right. Okay. So uh, in that case, you need to try to discover uh, what the cause is before you can address what to do about it. Okay. Uh, the two uh, primary causes, the most common cause is going to be a low thyroid activity. And that is simply because uh, there are many things that can compromise thyroid activity that are very, very common. One of, you know, one obvious uh, example is, well, it's not particularly obvious, but mm -hmm. it's a very striking example, is uh, insulin resistance. Uh, I don't think this is very well recognized at all, but insulin is a, a, a signal of, uh, being in a state of abundance that gets us ready for um, for using cholesterol and all the fat soluble nutrients to make sex hormones and other uh, other goodies that benefit our digestion and our our sexuality and fertility and virility mm -hmm. and our general overall health. And uh, one of the ways that it carries out that signal is by uh, promoting the production of thyroid hormone and the activation of thyroid hormone from T4 to T3. T4 is the precursor form and T3 is the active form. Uh, so by promoting both the production and activation of thyroid hormone, insulin uh, promotes the 
proper clearance of LDL particles and their metabolism into all those other good things. Because thyroid hormone, like we said, is is the key uh, the key signal that regulates the uh, LDL receptor activity and the clearance of those particles from the blood to produce the hormones and all those other goodies. So in insulin resistance, uh, you have, which is you know one of the most common uh, disorders that we face as a nation and as uh, you know other nations that are modernizing like the United States are also facing. Uh, when you have insulin resistance, that signal is not getting through. So what you have is poor thyroid activity that results. There are, are of course, many other reasons for poor thyroid activity, but this is probably probably the most common condition, I would think. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, if it's not a thyroid issue, then the other most compelling explanation for blood lipids that are really out of whack is a genetic issue. Uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, for example, is a very well-researched uh genetic issue that can cause these problems. So I think, you know, you want to determine uh, which it is. The most common thing is going to be the thyroid issue, but then you want to start determining, okay, well, why is the the thyroid activity low? And uh, there could be a number of explanations for that. The best you can do to uh, really understand the mechanism will allow you to make actionable changes to your diet or lifestyle to target them towards fixing the actual problem. Okay. Is, I know, so you've mentioned there's the, these two ideas, the insulin resistance and, or a genetic issue. What about a damaged pancreas, like pancre- acute pancreatitis or concre- uh, chronic um, pancreatitis? Can this, can this affect the triglycerides? Is that is that uh, possible? I I'm not sure off the top of my head what usually happens to blood lipids and pancreatitis, but I would suspect that it would affect the blood lipids because uh, mm-hmm. if if your um, you know that your pancreas secretes insulin, uh, so if the pancreatic function is out of whack, then that's very likely to cause um, insulin issues also to go mm-hmm. out of whack. Yeah. Uh, however, I I haven't studied the. Uh, exactly what happens in pancreatitis. Okay. Yeah, I was looking at someone I know, some their numbers and trying to determine where what the cause was for the insane out of range <laughs> numbers <laughs> and um we had suspected um pancreatitis. So I thought mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if this was a cause or you know like chicken and the egg thing. What what damaged what? So um, I just wanted to throw that uh, out there. Sure. It's tough to say, but I You're think right. that okay. you could inve- I think it's certainly an issue that can be in- investigated uh, with um, you know the proper medical mm-hmm. tools mm-hmm. and determine exactly what's going on. All right. Let's go on to, a mo- on, on to the food way here. Sure. Um, real quick, just get this out of the way. Do you prescribe to any particular diet yourself? I know no one wants to label themselves these days unless that's the book <laughs> they're selling. You know, if you're selling a paleo book, you're 100% paleo. But other than that, no one wants to self-label, but I need these words because they're easy, <laughs> you know. So. Sure. Um, yeah, I, uh, I I decided to drop all my isms a long, long time sure, ago sure. Uh, before, I got, before I discovered Weston Price. Um, so if, if you want to say I eat the Weston Price way, you could say that. Okay. Although that doesn't actually mean much because 
one of Weston Price's discoveries was that the diets of the people he studied were so radically were very, different. Ver- were, yeah, wildly varied, right, exactly. Yeah, but, I mean, my... By my, that... Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, I was just thinking, when you say to me, the Weston A. Price way, that just means whole real foods that are available to you, prepared in uh, a sure, traditional, proper way. So, yeah, and it also it also means uh, recognizing the importance of nutrient density nutri- and the inclusion yes. of certain uh, you know nutrient dense foods in a diet. Okay. Uh, so I mean, you know, my my uh, my nutritional approach I think is very similar to uh, to Weston Price's in terms of his philosophy and his science his approach to uh, science. And uh, there's another. Another guy that we don't talk about as much, Robert McCarrison, who I really like, and he was from around the same time, a little bit earlier. Uh, he was he was um, one of the you know the pioneers of the the growing uh, nutritional science, you know, back when it was first budding. And I think that Price and McCarrison had very similar uh, philosophical approaches to science, and I think that they were they were very wise. But yeah, I mean Price's Price's approach was about uh, whole unrefined foods, mm-hmm. and this was basically because he recognized that our knowledge is always limited, and he thought it was very harmful to say, oh, we discovered that this vitamin does this, so let's just take the vitamin, uh, because, you know, our knowledge is so limited, and it always turns out that things are, are you know, every five years or ten years, we can look back five or ten years ago and realize that things are a lot more complicated than we thought they were before. Yeah, we're, we're always uh, finding a, a new thing to blame in a new hero, whether it's uh, Bran. Th- you know, there's always a flavor of the month in in the game uh, of nutritionism. Sure, sure. But there's also, I mean, that, you know, putting the propaganda aside, there's also real progress in understanding the way that things work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Price uh, could, you know, what, what Price said back, uh, let's see, 60, 70 years ago, mm-hmm. um, is still applicable today, where he said that, uh, you know, the the way that nutrients are arranged in food is very complex. Uh, we understand only a very little bit of it, so it makes sense to use the whole foods rather than isolated nutrients. Uh, you know, we're coming full circle where we spent decades kind of ignoring that, and now researchers are, are, are starting to turn the tide in the mainstream nutritional science and say the same thing, hmm. that foods are more uh, complicated than the sum of their parts, that they're more, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah. But that yeah. wasn't Price's only thing. I mean, Price, Price wouldn't have said, uh, you know, just eat whole wheat and nothing else. You know, Price, Price noted that there were uh, certain key sources of fat-soluble vitamins that every group he studied... Uh, partook of at least one and sometimes uh, two or more of these groups. And he identified those groups as dairy products, as uh, seafood, especially shellfish, as uh, animal products, especially uh, organ meats, and uh, as uh, small animal products like insects and frogs and things like that consumed in their whole state. So every group that he studied that was healthy ate at least one of these uh, groups 
food mm. groups to supply the fat-soluble vitamins, and sometimes they ate more than one. So Price would never have said everyone needs to eat dairy, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. But he would have said you can't eat a diet that doesn't at least have one of these four sources of the fat-soluble vitamins because then you're going to get deficiencies. So I, I basically agree with Price's approach on that, too. I think it's important to... It, it doesn't mean that you you uh, must gorge on nothing but liver, for example, but it means that you have to have uh, at least one of these nutrient-dense animal foods uh, or uh, groups of uh, nutrient-dense animal foods in your diet on a regular basis to supply that nutrition that's needed. And and then finally, uh, Price recognized the diversity in uh, diets that could support human life, and he didn't cling to any theories about precise macronutrient ratios or anything like that. For example, his approach to carbohydrate was you should reduce the carbohydrate content that are content found in natural foods, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is very broad because some natural foods don't have any carbohydrate. Yeah. Some natural foods are mostly carbohydrate, uh-huh. but no natural foods have as much carbohydrate as uh, you know a diet a that's based on uh, nothing but sugar, right. <laughs> you see. So. Okay, sure. So how do we... Let's move, let's get to these fat-soluble vitamins. Uh, I think we're talking A, D, K. Is E in there as well? Uh, yeah. Well, it depends how you want to slice it. So okay. if you want to talk about fat-soluble versus water-soluble, then you'd put vitamin E in with A, D, and K. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk about function, then I think you put A and D and K together, yeah. and you'd throw vitamin E in with vitamin C because their key functions are yeah. antioxidants, and they actually cooperate with each other. Uh, so there's a... Uh, in a, there's, you know, there's a sense in which all of the nutrients uh, all cooperate with each other on some level, but there are very specific functional ties between A, D, and K, and there are very specific functional ties between E and C. Okay. Uh, so I think they're all important, but when I talk about uh, A, D, and K, uh, that's really a trio that I'm addressing. Okay, yeah, so that's funny to me because right now D is just off the charts, is the buzzword. If there was a, if you had a Google ranking for vitamins, I think D would be number one by... Vitamin D? Yeah. That yeah. seems to be what everyone's talking about right now. So, but yeah, if there's the a bottom. relationship from A, D, K, then we cannot focus exclusively on D. It, it's not going to, it's not going to tell the story, right? Absolutely, yeah. So what's exactly. with this A and what's with this K? What are these characters? Uh, well, uh, K stands for coagulation. Uh, in English, <laughs> we usually spell that with a C, but not right, in German, okay. and that's how it, that's how it got its name. Gotcha. Uh, but you know, uh, the focus on you know K had had been ignored for a very long time, precisely because it was seen as the coagulation vitamin, and it, no one realized that it had uh, important roles beyond coagulation. Weston Price had, uh, had identified what he called Activator X, and I have argued in a rather extensive argument uh, that is, uh, was originally published in Wise Traditions and is now on the Internet on westernyprice.org in an article called uh, the, uh, called, um, what was it called? I don't even remember, Activator X. Okay. <laughs> the, 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 um, uh, I'll have to look up the name. That's my, fine. My mind is gone. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I argued that this that this activator X that he was talking about was uh, you know was the was what we now call vitamin vitamin K two. 
but for you know everyone for most people forgot about Activator X, uh, you know after Weston Price's work faded away, and so no one ever pursued a connection between vitamin uh, K and Activator X or, or tried to make a connection or even discover what Activator X was. Uh, so vitamin K was was basically completely forgotten. And it turns out that vitamin K comes in two forms, vitamin K1, which is mostly found in leafy green plant foods, and vitamin K2, which is found in animal products and in uh, fermented foods. And vitamin K2 is very rare in the diet. So the paradigm for most of the 20th century was vitamin uh, K1 and K2 are interchangeable. All they do is support blood coagulation, and there's 10 times more K1 in the diet than K2 in the diet, so we have no need to pay attention to K2 whatsoever. We can just ignore it. Mm. And this uh, ignorance of this vitamin, this intentional ignorance of the vitamin, is so profound that the USDA didn't even include uh, analyses of vitamin K2 contents in its database of nutrient contents until 2006. Wow. And this was after a very slow trickle of information beginning uh, to some extent before this, but especially in the 1990s, where we started to realize that vitamin K also plays important roles in promoting skeletal health and in, uh, and eventually we discovered that it's important in protecting soft tissues from calcification, especially the kidneys to prevent kidney stones and the arteries and valves of the heart to prevent heart attacks. And uh, so as, uh, as this research started to come out, we started realizing that vitamin K2 is not the exact same thing as K1, and it's actually a much better activator of the vitamin K-dependent proteins that support all these other functions besides blood clotting, like supporting the skeletal system and protecting soft tissues from calcification. Hmm. Uh, vitamin A was never really ex- ignored. A lot of attention has been, uh, has been paid to vitamin A, but vitamin A really started getting attacked in the 1990s because uh, there was some epidemiological research showing that intake of vitamin A was associated with uh, osteoporosis and skeletal fractures. And these studies were first done and remained strongest when they were done in Sweden, uh, where the intake of vitamin D is very low, and there's very little provision of vitamin D uh, from the sun. And these first studies were part of uh, Sarah Johansson's uh, PhD thesis, and she had uh, done this. She had done her dissertation under a man named uh, Hopkin Nellis, I think his name was. And if you read her dissertation, which which I have read, uh, her hypothesis to explain these results was that vitamins A and D re- uh, have cooperative functions and antagonistic functions, both, mm-hmm. and they're needed in the diet together. And if you don't have enough vitamin D, which you don't have in Sweden, then vitamin A becomes harmful. So even, even in the, you know, that was the explanation that was given in the original researchers who first started, uh, you know, coming up with uh, these explanations. But because they came up with the explanation in the context of A being too high relative to vitamin D, all of, you know, everyone jumped on this, on this idea that A is too high and D is too low. <laughs> and no one decided to take into context 
that maybe A is only too high because vitamin D is so low, and maybe when you tell everyone to start uh, increasing their vitamin D intake 20-fold from 200 IU to 4,000 IU, that that changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's the thing. We don't have these studies done in people who are taking four to 5,000 IU of vitamin D, like the people pushing vitamin D are telling everyone to take. Right. So none of these studies in people, uh, done in people in Sweden consuming one to 200 IU of vitamin D a day, getting mm -hmm. almost nothing from the sunshine, mm -hmm. have any application at all to people who are taking, supplementing with 4,000 IU But, but that's a day. funny because she, uh, so she, she wrote about it right in there. She said why right, right in the study. Yet it just gets washed away. Like it sounds. Uh, well, it sounds you know, like the. You... It sounds like the McGovern issue. You know things that happened then when they they thought they isolated vitamin C and by saying well, it looks like it cures just about everything, so it must be the vitamin C in the citrus. You know, it, it had nothing uh, yeah. to do with citrus anymore. It had to do with vitamin yeah, I C. Think, I think if you read those papers, you will find. Uh, a, a brief mention of these of these interactions, uh, but they, there's you know in, in these in the papers they didn't have a lot of uh, opportunity they didn't have a lot of space to talk about it. Okay. Uh, in in if you read Sarah Johansson's PhD thesis uh, in her dissertation, she she did spend quite a quite a, a, a lot of space talking about it because she had the space there. And I really don't think that hardly anyone read her dissertation except me and her uh, graduate committee probably and maybe i mean maybe her parents did and and mm -hmm. i mean it's available online i'm sure some people read it but um but <laughs> yeah. you know so not... i thought maybe this went back to the idea of this whole you know how i think you had mentioned to me sloppy inferences making their way into um nutritional science sure well you know i mean that's I mean, that's the thing is it, it, probably the sloppiest uh, way of making inferences is to ignore context and mm -hmm. to say, you know, A causes B or A is associated with B. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in fact, um, you know, when you do a study, you, you might show that A causes B or you might show that A is associated with B, but that study is done in a particular context. And you can't generalize from that context to any other context until you provide some evidence that that generalization is sound. Uh, so if, mm -hmm. you, if you do discover a principle, and then you start generalizing from it and testing it in other contexts, then if it turns out that that principle is universal in all of these different contexts, then the more and more different contexts you test, the more and more your confidence increases that this is a general universal rule. You know. Things, you know, like gravity, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, if there was one study showing that something that was up came down, then, you know, it wouldn't be very convincing to infer <laughs> a universal physical law of gravity. Right. But it's, it's convincing because we have, you know, uh, thousands or, you know, probably billions and billions of, of anecdotes, at least, to support, to support this observation. Mm -hmm. uh, but but in the case of the vitamin A D interactions, that's not what we have. Right. Uh, okay. you know, so what I've what I've argued in my research and I've pulled together uh, you know, a, a lot of research going back to uh, at, you know, at least to the early very early twentieth century when these vitamins were first discovered, uh, and including modern molecular biology, that these vitamins are participating together. Vitamins A and D cooperate in cell signaling and vitamin K activates uh, proteins 
that vitamins A and D uh, stimulate the production of. So vitamins A and D tell the cells what proteins to make, and vitamin K activates them. We're discovering hmm. also now that vitamin K also has a role in signaling too. So it's it's more it's you know it gets more and more complex as things go on. Go on. Uh, so the implication of that is that uh, you you know, and along with that, there are many experiments showing that vitamins A and D are most effective and safest when taken together, and they're least effective and most dangerous when taken apart. Okay. So it follows from that that uh, in you know, studies showing that vitamin A might may be harmful, you have to say, well, what if the context is different, especially with respect to mm-hmm. vitamin D and K, because those are its interactive okay. partners. Do you have a source um, or a link that you could provide to teach people a proper ratios of A, D, K? Uh, well, you know, this is, this is a... I uh, mean for, uh, I meant that as in uh, for supplementers, people who right. supplement. For, yeah, dietary ratios. Right. Um, this, you know, there, there isn't enough research to back up a specific recommendation, mm-hmm. but we can make a sort of best guess. My, my best guess is that there is not a specific ratio that needs to be taken in, but there's a range of acceptable ratios. And okay. I say this because vitamins A and D are uh, actively converted into active hormone-like substances as the body needs them. So I think if they are in good supply, then the body regulates uh, how much it activates at, at any given time. Oh, I see. Yeah, interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, if, if, if I were to... I'll tell you one thing. The animal experiments tend to show that if, uh, if even if given in one-to-one ratios, uh, even if you have megadoses of the vitamins, they have a strong protective effect against uh, toxicity. Uh, so I I would say uh, a one to one ratio of A to D is probably within the realm of acceptable ratios. Okay. Uh, I think if you look at traditional diets of healthy populations, you are much more likely to see a higher intake of A than than you would of D in terms of input of D from diet and sun combined and intake of A from mostly from liver but also from a variety of um, plant foods in some instances and so on. Uh, so for example in uh, in the Greenland Inuit when they were eating their traditional diet in the 1950s uh, it was estimated that their intake of vitamin A was 30,000 IU per day and their uh, intake of vitamin D, we don't really have a, a an accurate gauge of, but it couldn't possibly have been more than 3,000 IU per day. So they were probably taking an, in an A to D ratio that was higher than 10. Hmm. Now, uh, there is some evidence that among the Inuit, they have adap- uh, specific adaptations that allow them to get by with lower vitamin D levels. Uh, so you know, it, it, again, it's important not to take one group and, and generalize from them to, to anyone, uh, to, I mean, to everyone. But I, but given the total lack of evidence for a very specific recommendation, my comfortable uh, range of ratios would be to say somewhere between 1 to 1 in terms of IU and 10 to 1 A favoring D. And I think that it would be safest to shoot somewhere in the middle of that. In between. So... You know, maybe 
four to one mm-hmm. ADD would be a, 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 a safer bet just because it's in the middle. Uh-huh. Here's another idea: eat a piece of liver. <laughs> would that help? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, in all honesty, I, I do not micromanage my fat soluble vitamin intake like this at all. Okay. So I. Uh, I, I never, I never count stuff like that. I just try to get, make sure I have good sources of all of them, and uh, I, I just don't think that the evidence is there that can allow us to micromanage. You know, if yeah. you have evidence, if you have like clinical symptoms of vitamin A deficiency, for example, like your night vision is poor, uh, you don't adapt well to changes in light, and and other other things like that, then. I think that's a valid reason to say, okay, you need more vitamin A. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 in the absence of a specific sign of some kind of deficiency uh, or excess, then I, I just think it's best to just make sure you have good sources of all of them and uh, let go and relax a little bit, you know, because it's <laughs> worrying too much yeah. about, the, the, about the exact proportions of anything in your diet is so harmful to your health Mm-hmm. Because it's going to make you stress out and obsess about yeah, things, yeah. and stressing out and obsession with things like that just cancels out <laughs> everything that everything good that you get. Everything that could come out of it, right? Right, exactly. So you're kind of back to that: eat that with the other, um, the more natural food approach, and then just relaxing on these numbers. So that's good. It's refreshing. I hope everyone can take a deep breath and calm down now. About their yeah, A and D, <laughs> or even if they knew about the A to begin with. But anyways, hey, real quick, how did you make it through school and not get drugged down the rat hole of USDA, FDA, ADA, um, conventional wisdom? Uh, I I didn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I when I was uh, when I was in undergraduate studying history, <laughs> I was very bogged down in that in okay. that stuff. And I, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, I prided myself on eating less than five grams of saturated fat a day when I was a vegetarian because I, I you know, I looked at the, at the, at the label on my, on my food mm-hmm. and I said, oh, the government says you should eat less than 20 grams a day and everyone still has heart disease. So he mm-hmm. must not be cutting it low enough, <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm. so, you know, and I wound up with all of those, uh, health problems that I told you about. So I am a survivor of the nonsense, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I, I didn't make it through uh, school at all like that. Uh, now, in graduate, of course, I wasn't studying nutrition, but I was exposed to the same thing. Oh, I see. Yeah, but you weren't discussing. Okay, right. You weren't studying nutrition as an undergrad, right. though. Okay. But now I'm, now I'm studying nutrition, and I already have that behind me. Uh, but you know what? I, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like in, in other departments, but... I think in my, you know in my department, I think things are very uh, or oriented towards science, and uh, people are very open-minded. Uh, you know, there's a um, actually there's a poster on the wall in our in our nutrition department building. I have no idea who put it there, but it was there when I got here. Uh, that says "Native Diets" at the top, and it shows a deer, and uh, it shows the. Um, it shows a close-up of the bones of the deer, and it mm-hmm. says that bones are a good source of calcium and other minerals. <laughs> it shows a close-up of the liver, and it says that 
liver is a good source of vitamin A and various other things. And it shows a close-up of, of the muscle meat, and it says that the meat is a good source of protein and a variety of other nutrients. i got to get this poster uh, and hang it on my kid's wall. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I don't, I'll have to look at it to see where it came from. I, I don't know who That's hung funny. it up there. Yeah. But, it, I mean, you know, the things that we are talking about clearly can't be unwelcome in the program if there's posters like that on the wall. So. That's good. At least you you find yourself in a good space, I guess. That's good. That's great. That's got to help. Yeah, it, it it definitely helps not to. Uh, it definitely helps not to be um, you know uh, antagonized uh, by any particular ideology. And I I don't feel antagonized in my department mm -hmm. at, at all. But you know, in other departments, it might be different. But I think uh, scientists are in general very very open to evidence you know there's there's a lot of conflicting pressures within uh science and some of them are not not good pressures mm -hmm. uh you know there's there's pressures to exaggerate the importance of your work there's uh mm -hmm. pressures to um you know to go along with the with the current recommendations and to to build off the off the current recommendations mm -hmm. instead of um, instead of, uh, you know, doing something against the recommendations. But there's also very strong pressures to uh, rely on evidence and to uh, recognize the strengths and limitations of your work and, uh, and to, uh, to be open-minded and willing to change your, uh, your judgments based on incoming evidence. Mm -hmm. So those pressures are conflicting, but scientists are trained, at least in part, uh, in those good pressures to recognize the strengths and limitations of their work and to be open to evidence. So I think if you, if, you, know, if you find yourself in a position where the overwhelming uh, ideology of the department is, uh, is you know, very different from what you mm -hmm. believe, then I think you just need to... Uh, keep your mouth shut for a while while you build your case, mm -hmm. uh, but when you feel like you're, you have a compelling argument based on a very careful and cautious interpretation of the evidence, then I think that you will probably be able to find people who are willing to, to listen to you, and that's always been my experience. Oh, that's great advice. Very cool. Awesome. So I know we're out of time here, but just real quick, where, where do you go from here what, what, you know, after, when, with the PhD, and what's your mission? Uh, well, where do I go from here? What's <laughs> my mission? Might be uh, might be different questions. Um, you know, I mean, because there's the, my grand vision and my my uh, immediate vision. Right. Um, my you know my current plans once I finish are uh, I got offered a postdoctoral position uh, with Fred Kumaro uh, at the uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and I plan on taking that. Um, graduating is uh, if there's one thing that I that I learned from grad school so far is you don't plan on when you graduate until you're done <laughs> because, okay. uh, you know, right now, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm almost done, but I, I was almost done a couple months ago and I'm, <laughs> I'm hardly okay. anymore okay. almost done than I was two months ago just because I've, uh, you know, these last couple pieces of lab work I'm doing, I've been doing a lot of troubleshooting, but I think I'm, you know, uh, making some progress and I hope to finish soon. Um, but, uh, so at some point this year, uh, God help me before the, before the summer I'll be moving on to that position in Illinois and I also have a uh, a book that I've been contracted to write um, 
for uh, New Trends, which is the publishing arm of the Weston A. Price Foundation on heart disease. So I'm going to be working on that. Uh, okay, cool. As as soon as I finish up. And you'll be sticking with the blogging and on your blog. Uh, yeah, Keep yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You will. Good. I, I actually, I I have to try to cut back on blogging at the moment, but uh, once I once I graduate, then I'll I'm sure I'll be at it full force. So. Oh, awesome! That's great. I can't wait. Um, I'll have all the links in the notes for everyone. And you know, if you don't go, if you're not going to go read show notes, you just Google Chris Masterjohn. I mean, that's pretty easy, and you're going to land there. So. Well, thanks, Chris. This has been awesome. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Brian. It was, it was a great pleasure to be here. All right. Bye now. Bye. wanted to give you all some details on the um, Audible offer. So for the listeners of this show, um, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free trial to check out the service. So what happens is you go to audibletrial.com forward slash docfermento. You get a free trial offer to start. The trial lengths vary. In the month of February, the trial offer is for 14 days. Now, sometimes trial offers go to 30 days. Sometimes they start in March. So just be aware of that. And so what does this mean? So what you'll do is you'll sign up to the Audible Listener Gold Membership Plan, which includes uh, one free credit. So with that, you'll get one free audiobook. In almost all cases, one credit equals one audiobook. And then after that trial's over, your membership will automatically renew each month for just $14.95, billed to the credit card you used uh, when you registered with Audible. With your membership, you'll receive one credit per month, plus members-only discounts on all audio purchases. So one thing I like about this, signing up for the membership, if you, if you choose to renew, is that they don't automatically deliver you some random book. You accumulate credits, and one credit is one book. So for roughly $15 per month, you get a credit towards one audiobook per month. And as a side note, I just finished uh, Joel Salatin's Folks, This Ain't Normal. How about making that your first book? I'd go for that one. Good choice. Also, another point. The free trial offer truly is free if you need it to be. At the end of the free trial offer... Your credit card will be billed for $14.95. If you cancel before that date, you will not become a member, but you get to keep the audiobook 